This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The warning bells are ringing from regulators, law enforcement agencies, and consumer organizations around the globe. The message is clear. Fraudulent schemes related to the coronavirus pandemic have arrived, and they are coming in many forms from investment fraud to fake CDC emails to phishing scams. And unfortunately, efforts to stop the spread of the virus may put investors in a precarious position when it comes to avoiding fraud. There have been many alerts like this from U.S. regulators, but this warning from FINRA captures the scale of the threat. We're fortunate to have with us today a prosecutor from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Dallas and the former first deputy commissioner of New York City's Department of Investigation. We're going to talk about some of the most endemic COVID-19 related frauds on this episode of Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. As Kurt mentioned, our guests today have a unique perspective regarding the intersection of regulation, enforcement, and fraud. Leslie Brovner is the founding partner of Peters Brovner LLP, a boutique New York City law firm focused on internal investigations, white collar and regulatory defense, and other areas of reputational and financial risks. Prior to starting Peters Brovner, Leslie served as first deputy commissioner of the New York City Department of Investigation from 2014 to 2018. Her work there focused on complex criminal and civil investigations, as well as coordinating between a variety of state and local agencies in the greater New York City area. Leslie is a consistent contributor to publications such as the New York Law Journal, the Gotham Gazette, and the New York Daily News, with a bent towards city government oversight issues. Recently, she was the co-author of a letter, alongside a longtime role model of Leslie's in Gloria Steinem, to New York City Mayor Bill de Plazio to request the prioritization of adequate staffing of the New York Police Department's Special Victims Unit. Leslie, welcome to Insecurities. Hi, thanks for having me. We are also very fortunate to have with us today Fabio Leonardi. Fabio is an assistant U.S. attorney in the Economic Crimes and Public Corruption section of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Dallas. Fabio was recently appointed as the Coronavirus Fraud Coordinator for the Northern District of Texas, which covers over 100 counties in the northern and central parts of Texas, including Dallas, Fort Worth, Amarillo, Abilene, and Lubbock, Texas. In that role, Fabio directs the district's prosecution of coronavirus-related fraud schemes in coordination with his counterparts at the SEC, CFTC, FDIC, IRS, FTC, SBA, FDA, and HHS. Uh, Check your acronym bingo cards at home for a few of those agencies. Ding, ding. He also works with the State Attorney General's Office and the State Securities Board. In addition, Fabio serves on DOJ's nationwide hoarding and price gouging task force, which addresses COVID-19-related market manipulation. In his spare time, Fabio is the chair of the D.C. Bar's Criminal Law Steering Committee and its White Collar Crime Subcommittee. Fabio has taught financial crime and tax fraud as an adjunct law professor at Georgetown University Law Center. And before he joined DOJ, 
Fabio was a big law attorney in D.C. So all in all, a perfect candidate to give us the prosecutor's perspective on COVID-19 related fraud. Fabio, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we jump into the topic of today's episode with our guests, Kurt and I wanted to provide a backdrop regarding two key elements of fraud related to the current pandemic environment caused by COVID-19. The idea of fraud in and of itself is a nuanced subject. There are a variety of definitions of fraud. Generally speaking, fraud is described as an intentional misrepresentation or intentional omission of material facts by one party to another, with the fraudster knowing full well that those facts are false or the inclusion of those facts that were omitted would be material to the other party. Volumes have been written on the definition and types of fraud. We're not going to get into that specifically, but one idea I want to touch on today is something called the fraud triangle. The fraud triangle is a theory behind fraud that was developed as a three-component model to explain why individuals commit fraud. Based on Donald Cressy's seminal research paper titled Other People's Money, A Study in the Social Psychology of Embezzlement, Published in the American Journal of Sociology in 1953, the fraud triangle explores the motivation, opportunity, and rationalization required by an individual to commit fraud from that individual's perspective. For example, a fraudster may perceive themselves to have an unshareable financial need, such as medical bills for an ailing relative or significant money owed for personal gambling debts. This perceived unshareable need underpins the motivation for that individual to commit fraud. Whether that need is actually unshareable is irrelevant. As to the fraudster, they may be too embarrassed or ashamed to ask someone for help. It's their perception of that pressure that motivates them to steal. So too are the elements of opportunity and rationalization. A fraudster may see the opportunity to skim funds from a business that they are the bookkeeper for, or to manage an investment portfolio for their personal gain instead of in a true fiduciary capacity to his or her investors. The rationalization is often the explanation the fraudster tells themselves to explain their conduct. That investment manager may believe, what's the harm in directing these investors' monies to a more expensive investment that benefits me? They're rich enough and they won't miss it. Another individual may feel that they have been passed over for promotion or that they are underpaid. And by stealing from the company they work for, or the companies that collaborate with them, they'll be getting what they truly deserve in terms of compensation and recognition. Those elements, the motivation to commit fraud, the opportunity to defraud, and the internal rationalization an individual may use to explain their actions to themselves are definitely in play and are being impacted by today's pandemic pressures. Kurt, I know another interesting nuance to COVID-19 fraud relates to the government programs being put into place to help our economy, and those individuals respond to certain issues. Can you tell us how you see fraud through the lens of those government programs? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think the fraud triangle is the right framework to think about COVID-19 related fraud, Uh, in in particular, the concept of of opportunity. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the loans related frauds that I think we're starting to see and we're going to focus on today. But let me take a step back. Um, For our listeners, we're usually talking about the SEC and securities related issues. So I want to put this in a little bit of that framework. So for months, the SEC, along with other regulators, have been warning about opportunities the COVID-19 pandemic presents for would-be fraudsters. The SEC's Office of Investor Education and Advocacy has warned that, quote, 
Fraudsters often seek to use national crises and periods of uncertainty to lure investors into scams. They may play off investors' hopes and fears, as well as their charity and kindness, and may try to exploit confusion or rumors in the marketplace, end quote. In particular, the SEC has warned about the potential for insider trading by corporate insiders who have early access to material information about a company's financial health. They've also warned about the risk that public companies, particularly microcap or penny stock companies, may make misrepresentations about their ability to develop technologies to combat COVID-19 or their efforts to manufacture or procure and distribute personal protective equipment or PPE. The SEC has also warned about charitable investment scams and community or faith-based financial frauds, many of which target so-called Main Street investors or senior investors. Since early February, the SEC has issued more than 30 trading suspensions based on questionable coronavirus-related claims. The SEC has also brought more substantive COVID-related fraud actions, including actions against two companies for alleged anti-fraud violations stemming from COVID-19-related claims. One involved false claims about the availability of a finger prick test for the virus. Another involved misleading press releases claiming a company was able to acquire and supply large quantities of N95 masks. And since March, the SEC has experienced a spike in COVID-19-related whistleblower tips as compared to the same period last year. And many of the tips, we understand, are now leading to new investigations. We're seeing other pandemic-related schemes, too, and a number of early prosecutions involving a range of alleged misconduct. In Georgia, for example, we've seen fraud charges against an individual who attempted to sell millions of non-existent respirator masks to the Department of Veterans Affairs. We've also seen charges, again in Georgia, against a man who allegedly defrauded his employer by faking a positive COVID-19 medical excuse letter, which caused the employer to stop business and resulted in unnecessary economic loss to the employer and distress to co-workers. Beyond this opportunism, that is, these new takes on old schemes, more recently we've seen the enforcement focus shift to the CARES Act and PPP loans. A little background. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, is a law intended to address the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. It provides relief in the form of economic stimulus to individuals, large corporations, small businesses, state and local governments, and healthcare systems. Under the CARES Act, the U.S. Small Business Administration, or SBA, established the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP to assist small businesses affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Both the CARES Act and the related PPP provide ample opportunity for fraud. Indeed, the SEC has been sending requests for documents to recipients of loans provided through the PPP and is looking into how the funds are being used. The SEC's initiative, or sweep as we usually call them, seems also to focus on reporting and disclosure obligations for public companies and registered investment advisors that receive a PPP loan. It appears the enforcement staff has questions about the legitimacy of loan recipients' need for federal assistance, and if there is a legitimate need, what the companies have disclosed. Meanwhile, we're beginning to see the first criminal charges relating to fraudulent applications for PPP loans. 
On May 5th, federal prosecutors in Rhode Island charged two businessmen with allegedly filing bank loan applications fraudulently seeking more than a half million dollars in forgivable loans guaranteed by the SBA under the CARES Act. On May 22nd, federal prosecutors in the Central District of California charged a Hollywood film producer with allegedly filing bank loan applications fraudulently seeking more than $1.7 million in forgivable PPP loans. Again, I think a lot of what we want to talk about today is where the fraud is occurring under the CARES Act or or more specifically the PPP, but just wanted to set the stage by pointing out that we are starting to see some of these first prosecutions. I think that there has been a real sense of urgency about investigating and bringing these charges as soon as possible, uh, both to to protect people, um, but also to send a signal to the market to folks who might apply for these loans and to folks who are sort of living in the in these strange times to be vigilant that these types of frauds or, or related frauds might be going on out there. So I think with that background, Chris, why don't we turn uh, to our guests and talk a little bit about what they're seeing? Yeah, Kurt, as usual, enough from us. Let's get to the people who really know. (laughs) Fabio, you currently serve as the COVID-19 fraud coordinator for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of Texas. Talk to us a bit about the focuses and some of the worries that you're seeing in the district regarding the coronavirus and fraud. I would be glad to. Before I do, I just wanted to remind our audience that The views I will be presenting during today's podcast are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Department of Justice, or any of its components. And with that disclaimer, I will jump right into your question. Our audience may know that the Department of Justice uh, took a very active role in uh, fighting uh, COVID-19-related fraud. Back in March, the Deputy Attorney General uh, issued a memorandum directing all U.S. attorney's offices around the country to create the position of the coronavirus fraud coordinator, which is the role uh, that I'm serving in currently. Part of the role is to serve as the legal counsel for the federal judiciary, prosecute and assist the prosecution and lead the prosecution of coronavirus-related cases. In the Northern District of Texas, Our focus in connection with COVID-19 scams and fraud has been on a variety of allegedly legal misconduct. And these are cases that we have seen in our district, but we've also heard of from our sister districts in in Texas and in other parts around the country. But some of the main focuses are clearly investment scams related to COVID-19. And that would include pump and dump schemes, insider trading, um, of course, we'll see and we have seen a lot of cybercrime related to COVID-19, business email compromises uh, or spoofing, for example, of uh, CDC or WHO emails. And of course, healthcare is a major industry in the Northern District and uh, uh, prosecuting healthcare fraud and during these times, COVID-19 related healthcare fraud is one of our main priorities. And in connection with uh, the pandemic, some of the issues or matters that our district and some other districts in the in the country have been focusing on relate to telehealth fraud or upcoding for COVID-19 tests 
or situations where labs and uh, doctors or other facilities um, add on unnecessary testing to our simple COVID-19 tests. Another really major area of focus for us is also procurement fraud, particularly in connection with the supply of uh, personal protective equipment, or PPE, and particularly in connection with local estate entities. We all know that over the past few months, municipalities and state governments have been uh, seeking to secure PPE for their own employees and to distribute to first-line responders and healthcare workers. Unfortunately, due to the urgency and the need for this material, uh, at times the required due diligence that would have uh, taken place in normal times was not possible. And uh, when uh, guards go down, that's when criminals try to take advantage of the situation. So we've seen, unfortunately, multiple instances of COVID-19 procurement fraud. That is particularly an area where our office um, is uh, dedicating a lot of resources. We're also, of course, focused on protecting the public. And uh, one way we do that is to stop and halt fraudulent treatments or cures or um, immediately identify and uh, potentially seize uh, fraudulent uh, personal protective equipment. Um, our audience uh, may be aware that at the very peak of the pandemic, our office uh, was one of the first offices in the country to uh, engage in uh, civil enforcement action to immediately shut down uh, to businesses, local businesses that had engaged in uh, making uh, representations, project representations in connection with uh, what their products could do to treat or cure COVID-19. Another area of focus for our office, and uh, I can tell you for Virtually every other office uh, around the country is hoarding and price gouging. Our authority to investigate and prosecute instances of hoarding and price gouging is derived from the president's executive orders and the following HHS designation under the Defense Production Act. This is an area where we have dedicated significant resources and we've been working alongside all major law enforcement agencies. Of course, it's an area that affects everyone from small businesses to major manufacturing corporations, the healthcare industry, and um, individuals around the country as we all seek to um, obtain uh, masks and other protective equipment to um, help us uh, fight COVID-19. And finally, another area of focus for us, of course, has been um, investigations and prosecutions of fraud related to the CARES Act. One of these areas of focus uh, within the CARES Act is the uh, economic impact payments, also known as uh, the stimulus checks. Um, and the second major area of concern has been uh, PPP loan fraud um, or SBA backed. Uh, loans that were issued 
uh, over the past uh, month or so to mostly small businesses around the country to help them um, operate through the pandemic. It sounds like a lot of different hats you guys are wearing as you approach uh, responding to all of the issues we're facing from the pandemic. So it seems to be you've got a full plate. Yeah, I think it's important context for us to think about all the the COVID nineteen related fraud or the opportunities for COVID nineteen related fraud, and and is in line with sort of that Finner quote we had at the beginning about just how broad ranging some of these schemes can be. You know, I think that one of the big areas that we want to talk about today is the opportunity for fraud relating to the CARES Act or the the PPP loans. Leslie, you recently co-wrote an article for the New York Law Journal in which you and Mark Peters, the other co-founding partner of your firm, Peters Brovner, focused on legislative issues relating to COVID-19 and the need for oversight regarding the stimulus payments under the CARES Act. Tell us a little bit about some of the issues you teed up in that article. So, you know, anytime there's uh, a big spending program there's going to be fraud. So we've seen it in TARP, we've seen it in Social Security Administration spending, and in Hurricane Sandy. The last time there was a massive government spending program that required getting money out quickly to deal with the crisis was the TARP program to steady the financial sector after the 2008 banking collapse. And that's instructive because the Inspector General for the TARP program recovered over $11 billion in forfeiture from a $700 billion program and also obtained 300 convictions. Similarly, the Social Security Administration IG has been able to catch a tremendous amount of fraud. For example, in one six-month period last year, the SSA IG recovered or otherwise saved the system $146 billion. And after Hurricane Sandy, the city, New York City, had a massive rebuilding program that we monitored at the Department of Investigation. And once again, we found fraud. Specifically, we saw wealthy people trying to get gov- the government to pay for improvements to their second homes. So, you know, and as Fabio did a great job of laying out, there's, there's lots of ways that fraud can occur generally. There's also lots of ways that procurement fraud can occur. Um, You can have people making up fake companies, fake employees. You can have made up lending institutions trying to steal people's identity. So look, it's, there's a legitimate need to get this money out there. People need the money. We need to get the money out there, but there's also a need to monitor. And and that's the difficult balancing act that, that we're all facing right now. I completely agree, Leslie. Some of the numbers or statistics around prosecutions emanating from the Great Recession are eye-popping. I would imagine that the stakes will be even higher in the COVID-19 paradigm. So let's dive in a little bit deeper into some of the fraud issues that relate to applications for PPP loans or the administration of the PPP. As Leslie suggested, we've already seen cases involving PPP-related fraud, including allegations of individuals falsifying applications by overstating the number of employees or creating fake employees on their loan applications. There are also downstream issues of using PPP funds for improper personal or non-business-related expenses. Fabio, I would imagine these are some of the issues your team is investigating. What are you seeing in the Northern District of Texas and around the country? PPP loan fraud is certainly going to keep us busy for the foreseeable future. As you know, criminal complaints um, have already been filed in Texas, New York, 
Georgia and California, and perhaps other states around the country, charging alleged business owners with filing fraudulent applications or misusing SBA-backed funds in violation of the PPP program rule. While the SBA Office of uh, Inter Inspector General is the de facto leading agency for these types of cases, I have to tell you, I've seen a, a truly collaborative effort from the entire federal law enforcement community. Um, agencies ranging from the FBI, IRS, uh, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency are just some of the few agencies that we have worked with um, over the past several weeks and months to actively investigate potential PPP loan fraud and CARES Act. As we know, uh, lenders around the country have processed their hundreds of thousands of these applications. Um, we are mining this fear. The Department of Justice, uh, both from Washington, D.C. and uh, through the attorney's offices around the country, are actively involved in uh, identify indicia of fraud and uh, then follow up uh, with agencies to investigate potential instances of, uh, of fraud. And uh, I would like to know that we are not solely looking at uh, applications uh, where the loans were funded or, or there have been uh, cases reported by the media where individual applicants uh, that applied for loans but were denied um, also have been charged with making fraudulent applications to improperly obtain uh, um, SBA-backed loans through lenders. Um, I have to say uh, we've been working very closely with uh, many lenders around the country uh, as part of this process to investigate potential misuse of the program. Fabio, that's very enlightening. Leslie, you spoke a lot about you know some of the prior oversight programs related to to government spending here um, as it relates to the coronavirus issues. Fortunately for me, I was able to to be on the front lines of that in the two thousand eight two thousand nine time period, working directly with uh, the Special Inspector General for the TARP program, as well as also working with the Special Inspector General for uh, Iraq Reconstruction. Uh, so previous periods of time where our government has put a significant amount of regulatory uh, focus, legislation, and, and actual funds out into the world. Leslie, in today's current inspector general environment, how do you see their posture impacting the amount of oversight we'll see related to COVID-19 funding? Well, I think the challenge for the IGs, you know, we've got some great IGs in place. Uh, the challenge is, number one, they've, they've got a full docket on their plate even before this happened. So, you know, they have to take this on on top of all of their other duties, uh, which is it's a tremendous amount of work and it's a tremendous amount of resource. It's very resource intensive. They're not getting any extra resources. Uh, I think they've done a great job. We've already seen the flash reports uh, from the SBA, IG, Hannibal, Mike Ware. He's looking at a lot of different issues. Some of them are criminal fraud. Some of them are one of the things he's looking at is, look, this money was supposed to go. You're supposed, it's supposed to go to, you're supposed to prioritize some money for women and minority owned businesses and for veterans. We don't even, we're not even tracking that. How, how are we even going to see if that's happening, if the banks aren't tracking that? But the IGs are, you know, they're working together. They're working around the clock to, to monitor this. It's a lot. It's a lot to take on on top of everything else they're doing. 
with no more resources. And remember, the government has the same issues as everybody else, some maybe even more so in terms of now they're trying to work from home. Now they're trying to work with less people. They, they've got to do everything remotely, just like everybody else. But often when you're in the government, you don't necessarily have the best high-tech equipment to do that. You're not necessarily in the best position to do that. So it's a heavy lift. I think they're doing a great job so far, but it is a very heavy lift. Yeah, I think that interesting to talk about how the focus of supporting the economy and making sure people can make ends meet has not considered the end result of, of how those funds might be used. You know, you spoke well to the fact that the the IGs are really kind of just picking up the pieces uh, on the back end. You know, how do how do we measure all of these requirements that were put in when we're not even collecting data about whether this individual was a veteran or not, whether this business that's that's receiving funds is a minority owned or, or female owned business. So, uh, very interesting point to what the IGs are looking at. I think one of the other elements that's so unique related to, to COVID-19, and maybe it was a little similar to the housing crisis, Fabio, that you spoke about, is the hyper-local sensitivity uh, to different issues. Obviously, you know, in the news, New York City has been and hit the hardest, uh, whereas middle America and some of the more rural parts of the country are, are not impacted as much from a, from a COVID-19 focus. Leslie, how are you seeing those issues play out in New York City, knowing your intricate knowledge of the New York City government and its oversight operations? Well, one of the big issues is that the CARES program, the way it's structured, you need to spend 75% of the money on payroll over an eight-week span. Now, in New York, number one, many businesses aren't spending the bulk of their money on payroll. They're spending it on rent. Number two, in terms of getting people back to work, we have really unique issues here. You know, most people in New York rely on the subway, which right now isn't safe or some form of public transit. So it's not a matter of just getting in your car and getting back to work. Even if you're healthy, even if your staff's healthy, you've got to move people in a way that it's difficult in New York. I'm not sure we're prepared to do that without a safe public transit system. And number three, I think it's complicated. It's hard to make things safe in New York because we have less space and so many people. So for example, saying to a restaurant, you know, you need to space people out. I'm not sure how a restaurant can both make a profit and space people out in a way that's safe. So that's an issue that's very city specific. And I think in particular, it's very New York specific. Yeah, I think that runs right in line with kind of that stereotypical uh, New York City real estate issue, you know, where you're, you're paying thousands of dollars for an apartment that would be a closet in, in any other part of the country. So seeing those uh, issues writ large, especially to the businesses that are operating in New York is, is definitely interesting. Right. I mean, I think having a one size fits all model for the country generally doesn't fit us in New York. <laughs> Not to feed into the stereotype of we're different and we're special, but we are different. And it, you know, we just have different issues given our spacing and our, our population. And at the other end of the spectrum is the state where everything is bigger, Texas. Fabio, with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas must present a different set of challenges than what we see in New York. How are things being seen there on the ground? Chris, I can tell you that our office has been extremely proactive from the very beginning. Immediately after the creation of the coronavirus fraud coordinator role and uh, uh, the subsequent establishment of the national price gouging and hoarding task force. Our office reached out to, I can say, the full alphabet soup of 
federal agencies to create a working group to together tackle the issue of COVID-19 fraud. And I have to say, it's not just federal agencies. We have worked very closely with the Texas Attorney General's office to both address issues of price gouging, fraudulent cures or treatments, and incidents of uh, potential commodities fraud or securities fraud. Um, one of our partners in this effort in the uh, State Securities Board. And uh, this is something that um, has been particularly successful. We've seen uh, wonderful collaborations among the various agencies, and it has really allowed us to cast a very wide net to investigate a variety of potential COVID-19 related fraud or schemes. So we are we have seen extremely positive results from this um, experience. And uh, as I mentioned, of course, because of our ability to be represented on the National Price Gouging Accordion Task Force, we've also been able to work with uh, regional coordinators around the country to better understand what is going on in other parts of the country, what other districts are doing, how they are approaching novel issues involving COVID-19 schemes and frauds. So this is an area where uh, I think our office has really done a lot from the very beginning. One of the things, of course, that is unique to the pandemic, which I'm sure has affected others, is not just our uh, area in the Northern District, has been uh, closures of courthouses or issues with grand juries. Um, I believe in many districts around the country, and including in other districts, um, sure, grand juries did not meet for um, certain periods of time due to the potential risks associated with the spread of COVID-19. However, I can tell our audience that um, the grand juries are back in business. And we have uh, already presented um, cases before the grand jury. And so whatever bottleneck COVID-19 may have created around the country, I think is going to be addressed over the next several weeks and, uh, uh, and months. And so uh, to the extent that some districts uh, may have uh, had to put some cases on hold, um, I have no doubt that from that perspective, we'll see a resurgence of uh, activity um, with the grand juries back in session and courtrooms reopening um, and uh, new cases being brought in through uh, networks of federal agencies uh, who are involved in uh, tackling uh, COVID-19 fraud and scheme. It's interesting to hear how the approach is different in different parts of the U.S. Fabio, it's also interesting to hear how you as a prosecutor are adjusting your practices or tactics. Another interesting element that we've been watching, another interesting feature of the regulatory response to COVID-19, and it's something we've touched on a couple of times today, has been observing how agencies are collaborating across agencies and across jurisdictions. 
I mentioned earlier that the SEC, for example, appears to have launched an investigatory sweep of public companies that borrowed money under the PPP. Fabio, you've mentioned that federal agencies are taking a we're all in it together approach. So tell me, how are the various regulatory agencies cooperating to investigate and pursue COVID-19 related fraud? As I mentioned, we've been extremely pleased with this very collaborative effort that we've seen from all of our federal partners. And I can tell you, we have been working very closely with um, our typical partners, such as the FBI or the IRS, but also with smaller regulators, um, and particularly in the area of PPP loan fraud. And that is an area, of course, that affects financial institutions, affects the Treasury Department. So that is an area where we have uh, reached out to regulators that have jurisdiction over these issues and uh, established programs to work together to identify potential leads and follow up on those leads with the view of uh, eradicating COVID-19-related fraud in connection with SBA loans. Some other agencies that we've been working very closely with recently and the SEC, for example, and the CFTC. And in connection with the CFTC, just to uh, give you some flavor, one of the areas that we have been uh, uh, collaborating with is in the area of of, uh, Forex. Uh, trading and uh, alternative investments. We have seen, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, how fraudsters out there took advantage of the crash in the stock markets to solicit investments in uh, other um, areas such as forex trading. So we've been uh, working, we've been very fortunate to be able to work with uh, extremely dedicated um, investigators and attorneys from agents such as CFTC, both in Washington, D.C., in the regional office, and the same with the SEC uh, in connection with the potential securities violations to all tackle these issues together. And I mentioned earlier during the podcast, we have been having a wonderful experience of working with our local partners, uh, state AGs, the state AG's office, uh, the state securities board, and uh, also local prosecutors who have been working on the ground with their police departments and sheriff's offices to identify issues that could be referred to us or other federal um, agencies or attorney's offices within the state for potential federal prosecutions in connection with these COVID-19 issues. It's good to hear that the level of coordination and cooperation is in fact that robust. I think that's certainly the narrative that is coming out of the the various agencies, particularly at the federal level. But it's interesting and it's nice to actually hear from someone on the ground that that is your experience, right? It's not just agencies in DC who maybe, if for no other reason by proximity, coordinate a little bit more closely. I mean, you're sort of you're out in Texas, but you're still experiencing that level of coordination. So I think it's a really important, it's a really interesting perspective and and a good story. 
Leslie, as a former member of the New York City Department of Investigation, I expect that you'll have a perspective too on what level of coordination you would expect among federal agencies, state agencies, and even local agencies. Uh, so what do you think? How, how should they be doing this? Do you think that they're doing a good job based on your understanding? I expect there will be a, a tremendous amount of cooperation. You know, some of the most impressive cases we see coming out of law enforcement now, whether it's in the area of money laundering or terrorism, they're coming out of these task forces. And, you know, when I was at DOI, we joined a number of task forces. We spent a lot of time coordinating with everyone from the FBI to various city, state and federal agencies and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the criminals don't operate in a silo. So it just makes sense to work together. People who scam one program are likely to scam another program. And two, government has limited resources. It makes sense to pool those resources. So I do expect there will be a lot of cooperation. I think we're seeing it certainly um, at the federal level. I think we will continue to see it. It's necessary and it's helpful and it works. And I think over time, you know, I worked as a prosecutor for many years as an, at the New York State Attorney General's office, and I've seen more and more cooperation over time, and uh, which I think is a good thing. I think it's, it's helpful to everyone, and it, you do build better cases. I mean, I think one of the things to take away is that, again, the, the scale or the potential opportunities for fraud are really wide uh, and could take many different forms or many different shapes. You know, I, I think what we're going to see is that regulatory, investigative, and prosecutorial actions and reactions relating to COVID-19 will continue throughout the summer, into the fall, and likely further into the future. Uh, Leslie, with respect to COVID-19 related fraud, what timeline should we expect? We're starting to see some cases, but when will we see an uptick? When is this going to peak? I think you're going to see, we've already seen some cases being prosecuted right away. But look, it takes time to build the larger, more complex cases. So you'll see cases over the next several years. Sometimes those cases, sometimes you start looking at one thing and it spawns an investigation into something else. I mean, one of the cases that we had when I was at the Department of Investigation, we started to look at somebody who was trying to fraudulently get money to repair a home, which led to us realizing that person had actually stolen the home, which led to us looking at a bigger scheme. So, you know, it can take a while to build these cases. So I think you'll see them over the next several years. And as long as there is money being handed out, you will see fraud. So the fraud will continue. We talked a little bit about the fraud triangle and the rationalization piece. And I think it's important to remember that there are people who view government money as they view stealing that money as a victimless crime. So, so you see there's going to be fraud as long as there's money being handed out. And you'll see the cases being prosecuted beginning now, but over several years. In that vein, you know, I have a little bit of PTSD from early in my career, say between 2011 and 2014, when I worked on tons of matters that involved litigation relating to mortgage-backed securities. As we look back, there are periods of time where accountants and attorneys all seem to focus on certain issues. You've got the stock option backdating and the financial fraud scandals of the early 2000s. You've got the housing crisis and mortgage-backed securities in the 2010s and the early 20-teens. 
Fabio, do you expect the COVID-19 related fraud cases to be another kind of focal point for government and private litigation in the early 2020s? Absolutely, without a doubt. Your reference to the housing crisis, I think, is particularly appropriate in this case. As we all remember, in the aftermath of the housing crisis, uh, we saw a particular focus on investigations and prosecutions of loan officers and mortgage loan applicants uh, in connection with uh, alleged fraudulent conduct uh, to secure loans. And I have no doubt that we will see the same level of dedication and efforts to tackle that type of fraud, but in connection with PPP loans, for example, for the foreseeable future. A lot of these cases may be simple and unnecessary complex, but as all cases, they take time. Um, Our agencies are focused, of course, uh, in uh, identifying potential fraud and prosecuting it, but we're dealing with so many types of issues just related to COVID-19, and so I wouldn't be surprised that some of these investigations, particularly the more complex ones, may take several months before they unfold. We're also dealing with an unprecedented amount of uh, um, applications, again, I'm still referring to the BPP loans, uh, that were submitted and processed by lenders. And so there is a significant amount of information and data out there that would have to be mined, that would have to be researched and followed up on. And so, um, you know, you mentioned your experience with the housing crisis, and uh, I would really expect something very similar here as well. And uh, EIP, the Economic Impact Payment Program, the Stimulus Checks Program, again, similar to the PPP loan program, unprecedented. And as any unprecedented program and as any widely spread and uh, widely distributed uh, disbursement program, it is very susceptible to fraud. And so that is another area where we'll expect to see a lot of cases coming up over the next several months and possibly into the uh, next couple of years, at least. I'm hopeful that at some point throughout this this tenure, if it does go as long, Leslie and Fabio, as, as you'd mentioned related to COVID-19, that fellow podcaster out there, Michael Lewis, will write a, a seminal book on this, and then it will be later made into a movie uh, so we can distill down all of the issues we're dealing with, similar to the big short and the housing crisis. So uh, maybe a little bit less mortgage-backed nuance and a little bit more uh, pop culture reference there. Kurt, I don't know if you have the same hope that I do to see some traction on that. Well, I mean, I'm always hoping for uh, for some new material from from Michael Lewis, which maybe is a, an interesting way to, to segue to the fun segment we like to do at the end. And what we want to talk about today is in short, what should folks be on the lookout for? I think a lot of times when you see guidance or alerts that come out of the DOJ or the SEC, other regulatory agencies, they often cast them in terms of red flags. You know, here are the red flags you should be looking at for a potential Ponzi scheme or for some other kind of investing fraud. Obviously, there are tons of opportunities for fraud relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. But if there are a couple red flags that come immediately to mind, either of, you know, maybe Fabio, for you, that's things 
prosecutors should be looking for, or, or maybe Leslie, for you, that's things that, that individuals should be looking for in terms of scams. Give, give us a couple, a couple of red flags that come immediately to mind. And Leslie, why don't we start with you? So I would say it's, I don't know if these are so much red flags as just the continued vigilance of people. I think, you know, if you're looking to donate to a charity, you still have to do your checks, make sure it's a good charity, make sure, you know, do some basic checks. If it's something you haven't heard of, be wary of people asking for your information, be wary of any sites asking for personal information even though we're in a crisis, you still have to maintain some level of, of wariness, unfortunately, you know, when you're, whether you're donating to a charity or responding to something. And obviously anytime you receive any email or anything, be, be careful if you don't know who it's from. So I don't know that there's particular red flags from this so much as just don't let your guard down in terms of the basic due diligence that you do at any time. That's great advice. You know, some of the schemes that have emerged in recent weeks are very specific to COVID-19, but in some respects, they're just new takes on old schemes. So keeping your guard up is certainly important. But Fabio, I want to let you weigh in. Are there any red flags we should be thinking about from your perspective? I would say watch for situations where the business opportunity presented really sounds too good to be true. In the area of PPE, I would warn uh, businesses to be on the lookout for opportunities where either brokers or suppliers seek to provide you with hard-to-find PPE. That should be uh, a major red flag. To the extent possible, it is very important to conduct a diligence on your suppliers and on your brokers. Uh, We've seen brokers taking a major role in the supply chain. Um, some of these brokers are absolutely legitimate and may have been involved in this business for years. Some others may not be as legitimate and they may have seen this as an opportunity to make money. They may have uh, limited connections with manufacturers or producers. They may not be in a position to assess uh, representations and certifications uh, provided by these producers. And so, um, again, particularly in connection with PPE, Without any due diligence or without any significant due diligence, uh, businesses may find themselves in situations where they make significant expenditures and they end up with a product that is not what they're looking for or may not even get the product at all. So certainly my, my hope is that as things reopen slowly and as more people get back to work, we may, we are going to be able to do some additional diligence in connection with business operations. So good advice from both of you. Thank you. I know our, our producer, PLI, always talks about staying ever current. It sounds like the takeaway here is to stay ever vigilant, uh, whether you are an individual being presented with an investment opportunity, a business person being presented with the opportunity to procure PPE or a compliance professional who needs to be thinking about their due diligence obligations. It really is that constant vigilance that is going to see you safely through this pandemic. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Leslie Bravner and Fabio Leonardi. 
Leslie, tell our listeners how they can learn more about Peters Bravner and your work specifically. They can find us at our website, which is petersbrovner.com, P-E-T-E-R-S-B-R-O-V-N-E-R.com. You can reach me by email at lbrovner at petersbrovner.com or find me and firm on LinkedIn. Fabio, if folks want to get in touch with you or the COVID-19 task force, how should they do it? Our audience can find me on LinkedIn and uh I would really take this opportunity, though, to uh, let the public know that if you are aware of potential COVID-19 related fraud, the Department of Justice has set up a hotline and uh, that number is 866-720-5721. And you can also find additional information on the Department of Justice website. And we are really relying on the public to help us identify potential fraud or schemes related to COVID-19. So please do reach out if you hear of anything. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners, regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for future discussions on episodes of the Insecurities Podcast. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I am at Enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI. <laughs>